let's, uh, let's talk about what we believe as a church real quick. We believe three things. Read this with me. Hope beyond our brokenness. So you are welcome just as you are. If you're searching for a perfect church, you ruined it when you, when you walked in. So you're, you're welcome right as you are. And then also the, the process of getting to know Jesus is that he does not leave you that way. And all of your spouses and parents and friends are quite relieved. <laughs> right? Amen? Amen? Second, read this with me. Trust in our risen Savior. That's what today's message is all about. Trust. What does that word mean? We're going to talk about that in John chapter 2. But Jesus is alive. He is risen. And we're, we're on this journey where we trust Jesus, and that requires repeated interactions with him. That's the nature of trust. It's this repeated interaction with Jesus where we rely on him, and we listen and follow his directions because, dare I say it, he's smarter than us all. Amen? Amen. That's the Aramaic word for I agree. Okay? Third, read this with me. We bring restoration. So... So Stuart's going to bring restoration in Jesus' name to somebody this week. You've all just been an answer to someone's prayer. Someone is praying right now, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this week. And you, you are, by putting a, a couple bucks or a pocket change into a, a metal bucket, custom-made metal bucket, um, you're, you're going to be an answer to someone's prayer. And all that is is just a shameless attempt to help you understand that you're called to bring restoration right where you are. First to your family, then to your, your neighborhood, to your workplace, to where you live. That's your calling. Amen? Amen. Steve likes that. I like that. I like that. Give me that big, deep voice, Steve. I like that. That's good. Okay. So each one of these things, hope, trust, restoration, they have a choice attached to it. So let's make that choice today as we read. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. And I absolutely love what Paul said today. It was so beautiful, Paul, in your introduction to communion, where today we once again say, I do. Do you? I do. I do. I do. So we've been in the Gospel of John, and we'll be in the Gospel of John for the next four or five months as we go through each and every story, and, and you get to unpack it. And I just love the Gospel of John. Uh, it's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. And you're going to see all of that on display today as we talk about, especially in Communion Sunday, about water being turned into wine. But today is about trust. So Webster's Dictionary defines trust this way. Um, oops, we're going to have to clear the background, John Blanchard. I'm sorry. I forgot to do that after that slide. So Webster's Dictionary defines trust this way. Trust is the firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of something or someone. So trust is a relationship word. And I think it's interesting that trust, actually, the first definition of trust is belief in um, then you wonder, well, what does believe mean? And then you look up believe and it says trust. Um, so what's going on there? Well, um, it, it, let's, let's focus on not trusting something, but trusting someone. What, what does that mean? So you trust someone after repeated interactions with them over time. Does that make sense? And what you're doing when you're having repeated interactions with that someone is that 
You're learning. You're determining something. You're saying, is this person reliable? Do they show up when they say they're going to show up? Do they do what they say that they're going to do? Are they truthful? Do they tell the truth even when it might cost them? Are they willing to be honest and vulnerable with me about them? Are they willing to tell the truth even when it's uncomfortable? You're asking them, are, are they able? Do they have ability? Meaning, are they capable of holding the precious people and precious things in your life? And are they strong? Strength is, isn't about like physical strength, how much you can bench press or something like that. Strength is, is the ability to stay present even when it's difficult. So strength is when life gets tough, do you run emotionally, physically? Do you leave or do you stay? And so we're having interactions with people. We're wondering, okay, are they strong? Do they, are they reliable? Do they show up? Do they speak the truth? Are they capable of holding precious, my precious people and my precious truths that I have? And all of this means that trust is earned. Trust is conditional. Trust requires time to grow. And it's important that trust works this way. Now, do not confuse trust with love. They're different. And if you confuse the two, then great harm takes place. So love is the choice to be for someone, to work on their behalf, to care for them, to, to have affection for them, even if they're an unreliable twit who doesn't speak the truth all that often. You picking up what I'm putting down? Love is not trust. They're different. Trust is built over time. Love is the choice. I'm going to love you even if you're an unreliable twit. And this is so important for us, right? Especially if you're a teenager. You need your parents to love you because you're not reliable yet. And if, and if it was me, I, I mean, I wasn't reliable until I was 25. So I needed April to love me. But we got married when we were 22. And I was a twit. Does that make sense? So read this with me. Read this with me. Trust is earned and trust takes time because trust requires repeated interactions in which we learn the degree to which we can place the most important things, people, and sacred truths of our lives in the hands of another. That's trust. Now, I trust April. I trust her with her. I trust all my most important people to my wife. She's demonstrated over time that she can hold them. My kids are still alive. <laughs> I'm still alive. I can trust her with the most sacred and vulnerable truths about myself. Right? She doesn't expose me. She doesn't wreck me. She doesn't destroy me. She holds those truths about myself in love. Right? When, when things get tough, I can trust April because she's strong. Meaning, and it's not that she has it all together, but she doesn't run. Okay? Now, I also trust my barber. <laughs> but what do I trust my barber with? Hair. Only my hair. <laughs> That's it. Every time my barber opens his mouth, I go, oh, yeah, this is why I'm never going to tell you anything. Right? Yeah. 
and you know people like that. People are constantly educating you about themselves. When someone does something to offend you, hurt you, what you say is, thank you. Because now I know the degree to which I can place precious things, precious people, precious truths about myself into your hands. Does that make sense? I don't have to get angry and resentful at somebody because they're untrustworthy. They're educating me that, that they're like my barber, right? I'm going to trust you with something that will grow back in a month. For some of you, you need to trust your barber a lot because you don't have all that much to begin with. And so I get it. You need something who's highly capable. Come see me. I will steer you away from my particular barber. So this is, this is something that's interesting um, about our lives is that, so each week I get up here and, and we say this, right? We say, okay, we're going to trust in our risen Savior. And, and, and that's what we do as followers of Jesus. So what are, what are we saying? What we're, what we're saying is that as followers of Jesus, as Christians, that we're committed to this repeated interaction with God where you and I are going to continually go to God and say, I'm going to rely on you. I'm going to, I'm going to place my trust in you. And because you're smarter than me, I'm going to follow your directions. It's both at the same time. And so it's a scientific experiment. Faith is not just this blind leaf. It's actually quite scientific. And what we do is that we trust Jesus, and then we say, well, how'd that go? And then we don't trust Jesus, and we say, well, how'd that go? Right? So we can say this, right? Was it better when I prayed about my fears or when I freaked out with my fears? Literally. Don't be emotional. Be logical. Right? Or was it better when I was generous with my money and followed a budget or when I spent everything and then freaked out? How, seriously, how does it go? Look, was it better when I forgave her for hurting me or when I just held on to that bitterness? What does is, what is the evidence of your life reveal? So this is, this is how trust works. We gather evidence. What does it look like when I put my weight on Jesus? And how does that work out in my life? So... Trusting Jesus, read this with me, trusting Jesus is simultaneously relying on Jesus with these different areas of our life, like our finances or our relationships or our body or our future or our present or our past, and also following his directions. I, I mean, I think that's easy to say, but I really want you to know that I mean it. A dysfunctional pattern, um, a way of not trusting Jesus looks like this. We mostly obey him when things are going well in our life. But when things fall apart, we get angry at Jesus and then go our own way. That's not faith. That's not trusting Jesus. That's using Jesus for what we want and then trusting ourselves when it gets down to it. Does that make sense? Trusting Jesus then is this choice that you make each day to rely on him and follow his directions when things are going great or even when the wheels are falling off of your life. 
And only when you trust him in both seasons will you experience the joy that this passage today reveals. So last week, Paul preached a wonderful sermon about um, disciples and about how Jesus calls and equips each of us to, to follow Jesus right where we are and to, to speak to both our, our family members like Andrew did with Peter um, and our friends and like Philip did with Nathaniel and then our neighbors. Um, so that was last week. Now, in those verses, there are a series of time stamps in John chapter 1. Verse 29 goes like this. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him. He pulls his disciples and says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 35, it says, the next day, Jesus again pulls his disciples and says, look, the Lamb of God. Verse 43, it says, the next day. Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. You're going to remember in John chapter 1, Jesus goes down from his hometown in Capernaum, down the River Jordan, almost 90 miles south to where Jerusalem is and the River Jordan is, gets baptized by John the Baptist along with tens of thousands of other people. And there, from that place, Jesus is going to head north back to the Sea of Galilee. So he's gone from Santa Barbara where he got baptized and he's going to head back home to Aurora Grande. Why? Because he's going to a wedding. He has a wedding invitation. So read this with me. John chapter 2, verse 1. This is where we find ourselves. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana and Galilee. Now, um, Jesus is heading to a wedding. Now, Paul already mentioned this, but it's worth repeating. A wedding is the celebration of two people getting married. A wedding isn't a celebration of only just the bride and the groom and how wonderful they are. It's a celebration of marriage because marriage is a picture of what heaven looks like. In heaven, love is never earned, but always freely given, just like in a good marriage. Amen? In heaven, we get to experience being loved. We get to experience being forgiven. We get to be experienced being totally reconciled with one another, just like in a good marriage. Amen? You are not very vibrant in saying <laughs> amen. There's like four of you like, oh. <laughs> Look, <clears throat> some, some of the marriages that you've been in, some of the marriages that you've been around feel more like hell than heaven. Don't get distracted, okay? Stay with me here on this particular metaphor. Marriage is a picture of heaven. Which, by the way, if you're married right now, your calling is to bring heaven to your spouse. It is not to wait for them to bring heaven to you and then you'll say, okay, I'll, I'll return the favor. Your calling is to bring heaven to your spouse right now. Picking up what I'm putting down? If you're getting an elbow in the ribs, it's because you deserve it. <laughs> so heaven is... It, marriage is this picture of heaven. In heaven, there is lots of wine and big feasts and lots of parties because it's the celebration that God has been united with humanity just like husband is united with a wife. And wine becomes this metaphor of marriage. It becomes a metaphor of heaven. It becomes a metaphor of salvation. So, Jesus is going to Cana. Where is Cana? Cana is about eight miles uh, away from Nazareth. That's, if you ask someone, how do I get to Cana? They're going to say, well, first you go out Route 166, 
past Kuyama, and then New Kuyama, and then Maricopa, that's Nazareth, and then it's eight miles past there, a.k.a. Cana is in the middle of nowhere. Amen? Amen. So you go to the middle of nowhere, which is Nazareth, and then you keep on going eight miles, and then that's Cana. Verse 2, so Jesus' mother is there, and Jesus and his disciples also been invited to the wedding. So Jesus' mom, now Jesus only has three disciples at this point, Andrew, Peter, and Philip, and they're all walking to the wedding in Cana. And I just love that, that someone invited Jesus to, to the wedding. Uh, can you imagine that conversation? <laughs> right? The wife looks at the husband, or the wife-to-be looks at the husband-to-be and, and says, well, who, who are you? Who are you inviting? It's like, well, I like the carpenter who built this table. He's kind of nice. His name is Jesus. Can <laughs> oh, I invite a carpenter to the wedding? Okay, just as long as he doesn't bring anybody else. Well, I think he's only got a mom around. Right? And what does Jesus do? He brings three, like, 20-something fishermen. You ever met a commercial fisherman who's in his 20s? They're rough, y'all. Okay? So they're going to a wedding where there's going to be lots of food and lots of free wine. Verse 3. Read with me. When the wine was gone, we don't know why the wine was gone. Maybe it's because Philip and Andrew and, and Peter were there. We don't know. But when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, Oh man, it's such a great, such a great image. Like there's so much, there's so many fun things to imagine in this. But let me just make this point: the wine runs out. Um, weddings usually last a couple of days at least because you're gonna you're gonna kill this big bull, right? You're gonna kill a cow that's about three years old. I worked at a dairy. Three-year-old cows weigh about 2,200 pounds. After you take the bones out, it's about 1,800 pounds worth of red meat. No refrigeration. You need a lot of people to eat red meat for three days, right? So you got carne asada, you got steak, you got burritos, right? You got shish kebabs, but you got to eat all that meat. That's a lot of money. So weddings last for days, and you need a lot of red wine while you're eating a lot of red meat, and so it goes. So this is incredibly embarrassing that the wine runs out. So in a shame-based culture, if you ran out of wine, it's like saying, oh, yeah, heaven's, heaven's closed today. Sorry. You know, you have to go somewhere else. I mean, like this is kind of a parent's worst nightmare at a wedding. And, and you know, they didn't invite Peter, Andrew, and Philip, so maybe they're mad at Jesus. Who knows? Um, but it's not, it's not like they can go to the store. You know, they're like eight miles west of Maricopa. You know what's in Maricopa? A shell station that's like, the other half of it is a subway that you don't eat in. <laughs> and then a hourly rate motel, right? Like, that's it, okay? So there's no place to go buy wine back in the day, okay? So the last thing that you want to do at a wedding is having everybody start drinking water because then what happens? They start sobering up. And they realize you've overdone the chicken, right? And this meat tastes funny. 
And like, that's all bad, right? So you want the wine to keep on flowing. But notice that in, the, in John's writing, there's no surprise. There's no gasp. There's no Greek word that goes, <gasps> like, it's, it's like it's normal to have problems. That's life. Problems happen, even at weddings. My buddy of mine was at a wedding, and his, his buddy was doing the wedding. So this is my friend who's a pastor. He's at a wedding, and he knows the pastor who's doing the, past, who's doing the wedding. And the guy who's doing the wedding is up on stage, and my buddy's sitting like the first couple of rows, and he looks, and he realizes that his friend's zipper is down. But the wedding hasn't started yet. So my buddy, who's the pastor, jumps up on stage and grabs this other guy, this other pastor. I better check my zipper. Yeah, I'm fine. And, and he goes, and he, and he whispers into his ear, your zipper is open. And the pastor kind of turns, hugging, and he says, what do you think I should do? <laughs> and my friend, who's sitting in the way, says, well, there's an American flag over there on the stage, so let's just go over there together, and I'll pretend to pray for you, and you can zip up your zipper. And the pastor who's doing the wedding goes, that's a great idea. And so they walk over there. So if you were part of the wedding, you would have seen like this guy jump up and grab, hug this pastor, and then they walk over together, and they're praying, yes, Lord, amen, you know, and the guy's zipping up his zipper. And so my, my buddy, like he runs back down and like hops down, and the wedding's but my, the pastor who's doing the wedding doesn't realize until he's walked three steps that he zipped up the flag in his pants. So the wedding starts with the pastor just bringing down the flag and then what? And of course the congregation was just thrilled that all of this happened at a wedding. Look, problems happen. Like problems, I don't know, how many times have you planned for a vacation, planned for a wedding, a graduation, a birthday party, a holiday? It's this time of rest and celebration, and you finally get there, and that's when you get sick. That's when the septic tank backs up. That's when you run out of money. That's when stress goes like crazy. Do you, right? Right? Like Janice just did a wedding. I was at the wedding that Janice just did. Right? Like, talk about stressful. Yeah, no American flag. Janice did a great job. So, the, so here's the idea, is that, is that problems are normal, problems happen. Even, I mean, goodness, how many of us, we got married, and then problems started in our marriage. Like, that's, that's normal. That happens. And, and so what is, what is Jesus doing? Well, you could say from the text, well, he's not doing much, but let's talk about what he's not doing. Jesus is not freaking out. Jesus is not shaming or condemning the parents of the bride and groom for being poor or not having enough wine. Jesus is not leaving saying, oh, there's problems, I'm out of here. Jesus is staying present even though there's a problem. And we're going to see he's more than capable of dealing with the problem. So the question in following Jesus isn't whether we have problems. It's not even why problems happen in our life. Problems are a given. Suffering will come. Here's the question. Do you believe that Jesus has the capability to solve your problems and that his answers and timing and plan is better than yours?
Do you believe that Jesus has the capability to solve your problems and that his answers and timing and plan is better than yours? Now, like, we don't know why the wine ran out, why the wine ran out. John thinks that point is irrelevant when he writes this. But what is relevant is that Jesus waits till the wine runs out. And Martin Luther, the great reformer, writes this. Christ waits to the very last moment when the want is felt by all present and there is no counsel or help left. And this shows the way of divine grace. It is not imparted to one who still has enough and has not yet felt his need. For grace does not feed the full and satiated, but the hungry, as we have often said. And here's my problem. This is my present tense problem. This is the thing that I'm dealing with in my life the most right now. I don't trust God when things are going well. I just assume that he's approved my independence. It takes my life falling apart, some area of stress or failure or fracture in order for me to go, oh yeah, I'm supposed to trust you, Jesus. I'm supposed to rely on you, Jesus. I'm supposed to interact daily with you and receive your direction so that, I can go, so that it can go well with me. Does that make sense? All of us have had this. This is all of our stories. We went our own way. How'd that turn out? Come on. Not good. And then we went, oh, no. Okay, God, save me. And then we became a Christian, right? And then, and then what do we do as Christians? We go our own way until it all falls apart. And what Jesus is saying is, Look, trust and grace, grace is given. Trust looks like not just following God when everything is hunky-dory, but in all the moments of your life, in the great failures, but also in the great successes. That's what it looks like to trust God. And, and this is what's so amazing about God, is that like, what kind of redeemer would love me even when I, when I only talk to him when I'm in desperate need? God is that gracious, that kind, that wonderful, that even when I've mucked it all up, even when I've used him as a cosmic slot machine, right? I've just put my quarter in and pulled the handle in Jesus' name and just, just give me my stuff, Jesus. Even when I've used him like that, my heavenly father still loves me and adores me and is still present with me even when I've messed it all up. What kind of redeemer is that? It's... It's a redeemer you can trust. So do you believe that Jesus has the capability to solve your problems and that his answers and timing and plan is better than yours? Do you? Yes. Say it like a vow. Do you? Do. So two slides from now, John, in chapter 2, verse 4. So Jesus' mom has just said, hey, They've run out of wine. And Jesus, read this with me. Woman, why do you involve me? Let's try that again. <laughs> Verse 4. Woman, 
Why do you involve me? Now, this is not like, woman. This is, remember Mary, Jesus, after the resurrection, Mary Magdalene. This is a term of endearment. It's sweetheart, right? It's sweetheart. That's what it kind of means. Sweetheart, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. In chapter 11, he's going to resurrect Lazarus. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And, and everybody's eyes will go wide open. And they go, oh my gosh, Jesus has powers. I think he might be God. And that's when they decide to crucify him. So he's got three years of public ministry to do. He, it's not time for Jesus to reveal to the world that he's fully God and fully man, especially eight miles east of Maricopa at a wedding that run out of, that's run out of wine. He's around a bunch of drunk people. Like, like, I think they're fine, Mom. And she's like, no, 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 the wine has run out. Right? So... God's timing is not our timing. But Jesus has good reason for, in a few words, he tells his mother, look, they're not ready to know I'm God yet. But, I don't know, sometimes you and I feel like God has left us alone. You feel like the wine has run out, God. Like the wheels are falling off. Disasters happen. I have nothing left. And we want Jesus to save us in a very particular way. Right? Like we have a plan. We have a to-do list for him. And we willingly give that to him. I need you to do this today. I need you to do this tomorrow. I need you to fix me this way. Fix that person these ways for sure. <laughs> right? Like we got plans for God. And sometimes... Sometimes all we have is Jesus next to us, present with us. The wine has run out. And that's the moment when if things aren't going the way that you want them to, and you don't know why he's waiting, then you got to hold on to him somehow. And this is how you hold on. Jesus didn't let you go when he was on the cross and he's not going to let you go now. When the wine has run out, when disaster is coming into your life, he didn't let you go on the cross. He has not saved you and redeemed you and adopted you to have your whole life be destroyed. He loves you. He's not going to let you go now. Amen? Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I just love this. You could read this both ways. You could read this as Jesus, his mom is totally trusting Jesus. Like Mary says, okay, Jesus, whatever you want to do, that's fine. Or you could trust it like she's the classic mom that all of us know where she's really just bossing around Jesus. But instead of waiting for an answer, she just turns to the, the servants and says, just do what he tells you to do. He's my boy. <laughs> you could read both legitimately, and I think both are true. It's fantastic. So, so the God of the universe gets bossed around by Mary, right? Verse 6. Here we go. Uh, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill 
the jars, that's about 150 to 180 gallons, filled the jars with water, so they filled them all the way to the brim. Verse 8, then he told them, read with me, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Master of the banquet would have been a family member, probably an uncle, right, that would have run the family. They're like a wedding planner, um, so that that way mom and dad don't have to run the wedding, but they're related and they're connected. And so, so verse 8, now draw them out. So the servants call the master of the banquet over, and Jesus nods at the servants, and the servants draw out the water, and they take the water, and they draw it out, and, and as they pour the water in, it turns to wine. <laughs> then, then Mary is holding her glass out, and she says, Jesus, turn mine into wine. Oh, thank you. Turn mine. Now, this is, um, these are pool chemicals. <laughs> right? These are, this is an indication chemical, and then in this one was pH, a low pH, and you find out if your pool is toxic or not, and it turns the, this is not wine, don't drink this. <laughs> don't drink this. But they get, the, the master of the banquet gets shocked because he tastes this wine, and it's not like two-buck chuck, right? That's the Trader Joe's cheap wine, right? It's, this is three-buck chuck now, okay? It was two-buck when I was drinking it, but... He realized this is like a, this is like a, like a, like a 30, 50, this is like a $50 bottle of wine. This is, this is the good stuff. And the master of the banquet is looking over this inebriated crowd and he looks at 180 gallons of wine and he does the math, $50 times 180 is $27,000 worth of wine. Why would you save $27,000 worth of wine Whenever, nobody can tell the difference between three buck chuck and a Rothschild, right? Now, the master of the banquet, the ceremony, is he has no idea where this rosé came from. This one looks gross. This one looks a little bit better. <laughs> he has no idea. But who knows the miracle? The servants. The servants know the miracle. And, and, and here's... Here's the point. Look, trusting Jesus often looks like just following simple directions. And then you get to be a part of something amazing. Now there's, there's a last point here. Why does, what does this mean for us today? Here's the clue. Why does Jesus use water that was supposed to be meant for purification. Why not just other water? Well, here's the idea. In the Jewish way of thinking, what you would do in order to be in God's presence is you'd take this purification water and then you'd wash all the muck and grime off of your body. And then that would be a symbol or a metaphor that you would be cleansed and acceptable to be in God's presence but it's a metaphor only. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says this, this wine is now my blood and I want you to drink me in. 
Because it's not going to be an outside-in cleansing. When you know Jesus, it's going to be an inside-out cleansing. That's why he uses the water of purification. That the moment that you trust Jesus, the moment that you invite him into your life, the moment that you're willing to rely upon him and listen to him and follow his directions, that's the moment that you've been cleansed from the inside out. The truth of the gospel is that what we bring to God is our desperate need. That's what you offer to you, this equation called salvation. And the miracle of the good news is that not only are your sins forgiven, but now God has built a winery inside of your own heart. And it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that the joy and laughter and love and reconciliation that happens in a wedding in heaven will be with you for all eternity starting now. And so it doesn't matter if the wine runs out in the outside world. You have the winery inside. Amen? And this is the miracle of the gospel. This is the reason why you would trust Jesus. Is it not that everything would work out perfectly on the outside of your life, but that you would have a never-ending well of resource within you of love and his presence and his power. And do you want that? Yes. Trusting Jesus is a repeated interaction over time. Would you be willing to invite him in and say yes once more today. And maybe there's someone here that, that this will be the first time. Would you be willing to say, Jesus, come into my heart, into my life, and give me never-ending life? Let's pray. Jesus, you are my salvation. I don't have any other resource to deal with life except you. I'm in desperate need, thirsty for your presence, for your healing, for your wisdom, for your peace and joy. I have people I love and care about that I have no idea how to help. I have situations that I'm facing that I have no resources to bring to bear that would help. Oh, Jesus, I invite you in yet again. Come reside within me. Dwell within me. Remove this fear. Deliver me from my sin. Forgive me. Give me a heart that is dedicated to relying on you, to following your directions, to trusting you. Because it's hell without you, God. Lord Jesus, I pray your blessing upon these decisions that these saints have made today. Guard them and bless their hearts. Protect them when the enemy comes to steal that away right when they leave. I pray your peace upon them, your sealing, holy work upon them. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you are their redeemer. You're my redeemer. 